I'm Hannah Garland, mom, wife, formerly overwhelmed human being, and I believe in living an uncommon life. In my uncommon life, I know I'm not meant to be a perfect person, but I am meant to be a peaceful one, free from anxiety and unrest. In pursuit of this purpose, I live intentionally, making choices to take care of myself, simplify all facets of my life, be vulnerable, and trust in God. Do you feel like it takes every ounce of your energy just to barely get through each day? Too often people, especially wives and moms, feel chronically anxious and unwell because they don't devote time to understanding what would truly bring them peace and joy. Meanwhile, they go through the motions and miss out on what matters most. I want to invite you to stop surviving and start thriving. Learning to thrive can be a simple notion. Sometimes it does look like just getting through the day, but with a little more peace and fulfillment. Ultimately, your uncommon life will look different than anyone else's. My goal is to empower you with the knowledge and confidence to make choices for yourself that are against the grain and might not always make sense, but are beneficial for your mind, body, and soul. This is your uncommon life. Start living it. Hello, everyone. This episode is a bit of story time, which I love, but that also means it's a little long. It's a story about how I came to live below my means, even when I didn't have to, in a part of the country where many people don't, and why I'm so thankful that we do. We have total financial peace, and it's a beautiful and freeing thing for us. Around here in the Seattle area, it's very uncommon to live this way. In the suburb where we bought our first home, the median home price is currently $1.1 million. You heard me right, over a million dollars for a normal house. It's unbelievable. It was recently named the wealthiest small town in America or something like that because of a high median household income. Most people who live there work in tech as Seattle has become a second Silicon Valley in recent years. The streets are filled with Teslas and Porsche Cayenne SUVs, and someone will slaughter me for mispronouncing Porsche, but I really don't care. Children go to expensive preschools, and we are home to what was, and maybe still is, the wealthiest public high school in the country. You get the picture, all right. It's privileged. I used to think that people who live like this didn't struggle as much financially, that if they bought a million-dollar home, that meant they could afford it. Surely no one would take out a mortgage that large if they couldn't afford it. Such a cute, naive thing to think. Then I became a real estate agent and saw well-paid people struggling to make ends meet because of the house, the vacations, the cars, the debt, and the lifestyle that was closing in around them. I had clients tell me that they needed a four-car garage because they were busting out of their three-car garage. And I'd ask, why? Do they even have four cars? Usually they didn't. They had just expanded their lifestyle so much that they had acquired toys and equipment and junk that needed to be stored. And that pile of expensive junk just expanded as they went from house to house, paying to move things that they use once a year or less. Meanwhile, they were stretched financially, maintaining the lifestyle that they thought they needed to have. Most people think it's normal to be in debt. And unfortunately, it is normal, but that's not the right lens through which to consider how to run your life. It's normal, but it's not beneficial. I can think of countless other examples of normal things that aren't good for you, like uh, it's normal to have a very sedentary lifestyle. It's normal to stare at screens all day. It's normal to have high stress and anxiety, and so on. I'm convinced things like debt come down to a problem of contentment. It seems to be common in our culture to have a gap between what we actually need and what we think we need. 
The key to contentment and therefore to being financially free, because I do believe that the way we spend our money reflects our levels of contentment, is focusing on what you need and making sure everything you spend your money on serves you and has a clearly defined purpose. Whenever I feel myself pulled by the desire to have more than I need, I remember what a couple wise old dead people have said. Socrates said, He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. He understood that contentment comes from adjusting your state of mind, not your state of living. I read a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by a Puritan preacher named Jeremiah Burroughs who died in 1646. Doesn't that sound like really fun reading? Yeah, I'll give you the Cliff's Notes. Contentment is a quiet, inward, gracious, pleased frame of spirit in all conditions and situations. A contented person submits to God's will and does not wait for better circumstances in order to make good choices in his life. He does the best he can with whatever he has in whatever condition he is in at any time. Another principle that Jeremiah Burroughs espouses is that contentment lies in subtraction, not in addition. Rather than adding things and desirable circumstances to reach contentment, subtract your desires to make them equal to your current circumstances. Adding things and better circumstances to your life will give you a temporary bump in happiness before you go back to being exactly who you are. Think of when you've got something you've really wanted, maybe a nice car or clothing or a great dinner out. How long were you happy for? While imprisoned in Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. If you are content in every circumstance, then contentment is not circumstantial at all. You will learn to adapt to a different standard of living, to not look to things to bring you happiness, to not wait to be content, and to put yourself in a position to have financial freedom. Consider Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you haven't heard of this, you can check Google or head to the podcast transcripts on my website, youruncommonlife.com, and check out an image and a link I've shared there. It's basically a pyramid wherein the needs lower down must be satisfied before moving up. So on the bottom are basic needs like food, warmth, and water. Warmth being clothes and shelter. Safety or security is a little higher, but it's still considered a basic need. Further up are psychological needs like intimacy and relationships. Then at the top are things like self-actualization and achieving your full potential. According to Maslow, you, you can't move up the pyramid to higher forms of happiness until you've fulfilled your basic needs. Furthermore, the needs on the bottom of the pyramid are deficiency needs, meaning we are most motivated to pursue them when we believe they are deficient. Therein lies our modern dilemma. We have redefined what basic needs look like far beyond what we actually need, so we regularly feel deficient when we aren't. We actually spend our lives pursuing those basic needs of warmth and shelter as we constantly redefine what warmth and shelter looks like. We chase better homes, home improvement, and more clothes. So when you try to have more than you need, you prevent yourself from moving up the hierarchy of needs and prevent yourself from feeling satisfied. You actually rarely add to your happiness doing this. Instead, you just add stuff, stuff that costs money and needs to be maintained, cleaned, and updated. Seeing people around me stay dissatisfied as they pursue more and more stuff that they think they need, staying stuck at the bottom of the pyramid, 
has made me very thankful for choices I had made years ago to stay out of debt and live below my means. My life has problems. We all have problems, but at least I can manage financial problems by managing my lifestyle. It all started with how my parents managed their finances, which was a clear foundation for how I manage mine today. Maybe as you hear about my childhood, you'll think of some ways you can be frugal with how you raise your children. Or maybe you'll think it's an extreme story and that I'm truly crazy. Who knows? I started out in life being content with what I have. I think most kids do before they're exposed to other people and start to compare lives. My mom did an excellent job of making my dad's blue-collar salary stretch. They owned their home, were never laid on bills, were never in debt, and gave us a comfortable and stable life. We weren't in poverty, but technically we were a low-income family. I was the youngest of four and had three older brothers. My clothes were used or hand-me-downs from my brothers. I think we started getting new shoes and small things here and there from like Payless and outlet stores when I was in middle school, but again, it was sparse. Even birthdays were tightly managed. My parents always had a $20 limit for gifts, even when they could have afforded more. We got to choose our birthday dinner and eat on a special plate. For the party, we could have cake. Like, only cake, nothing else. That was always enough for me as a kid, though. I didn't know other people were having more food and activities and big parties until I got older. Then I started begging my mom for more at my parties, like more food and money to go bowling. In hindsight, I feel selfish for doing that. That was wasteful. My parents also spent $20 on each of us for Christmas. We knew this limit, and we were careful not to ask for things that cost more than that. In addition, we were each given $5 to go to the dollar store and pick out a $1 gift for each of our five family members. This was actually a really fun tradition. We'd spend what felt like hours. It was probably only like an hour, but you know how everything feels bigger and longer as a kid? We spent that time at a dollar store that sold everything from kitchen utensils to jewelry and meticulously poured over our gift options until we found the perfect one for each person. If we saw each other in an aisle, we would hide our basket while sneaking a peek at theirs. Did they get me snack cakes? A toy? Afterward, we'd stop by the pet store next door and look at the puppies, which is free entertainment. This was a normal tradition in our family. It was frugal, but fun. We ate restaurant food once a month, and it was as follows. One month, we'd get pizza from someplace that had coupons, and the next month, we'd go out to Old Country Buffet, and we'd go back and forth alternating months indefinitely. Old Country Buffet was a spectacle. We had four skinny kids acting like they'd never eaten before, loading their plates with fried shrimp and soft serve ice cream and making what we called OK Soda, which is just like a mixture of everything. It was amazing to us, though. I remember trying to sneak cookies out in our pants, which you weren't really allowed to do. Other than that, we ate whatever meals my mom meticulously planned a week or two in advance. Sodas were called pops because my mom was born in Chicago and we were allowed one can of pop a week. If we wanted more, we paid 40 cents because that's what they cost my mom. When we went to grandma's or an event with free drinks, we'd each take as many pops as we could and put them in our clothes. Then we'd come home and stash them somewhere in our room. So our siblings couldn't find them. My brother had maybe 40 or 50 cans in one of his dresser drawers at one point. And that's a small business right there. If he can undercut my mom by 15 cents a can, then he's in business. We weren't allowed much sugar, so I learned to bake at a very early age to satisfy my sweet tooth. When I wanted to turn my skills into a small business and sell cookies and brownies during our annual yard sale, my mom charged me for the ingredients at cost, everything from flour to butter to salt, 
and deducted them from my gross earnings, which taught me about profits and the value of a dollar. I still appreciate that lesson. We were never paid for chores. Chores are just what children did in our house. I have way more examples and stories from that time, but the long and short of it is that I was very pleased with that life, and I learned a lot about frugality that I take with me as an adult. My parents made our lives seem full without a lot of money. My mom did a great job of being transparent with how she was managing money, and that's why I grew up very aware of what things cost and what to spend money on. If you take anything away from my childhood story, it's that... Though it might not have looked abundant to an outsider, we were never lacking. We were content to have a stable home in exchange for less stuff. We still made memories with less. We still had fun with less. I'm glad I learned the value of the dollar early to protect me from being enticed by debt. I knew the main reason my parents could afford to take care of us was because they avoided debt. Though I was never really enticed by it, I did make a few mistakes in college that led me to debt and taught me to fear it. I knew, for example, that I shouldn't open a credit card, but I still did at Macy's. I believe I bought a pair of shoes in order to get like a small percentage off of the purchase. I can't remember the pair of shoes. I'm sure they were fabulous, but I'm also sure they weren't worth the $500 that the debt ballooned into when I fell into hard times and couldn't afford the payment. Then, I had to take out a small loan from the bank to pay for school when I lost my scholarships one quarter due to bad grades. That $2,000 loan haunted me for a few years too long as well and prevented me from pursuing other opportunities as I was quite literally tied down by my debt. I'm aware that most people come out of college with much more debt than I did, so I won't pretend like my situation was bad or special. But it was enough of a brush with the grip of debt to teach me to avoid it like the plague in the future. A big part of avoiding debt after college was convincing myself I didn't really need the things that other people had. Honestly, this was when I first realized that I had to live a little uncommonly or a little differently in order to be satisfied and content. Between college and marriage, I was always working multiple jobs and living in dirt cheap rentals to ensure that I never had to decide between paying bills and buying food again. And I mean dirt cheap. I'd rent a room in five bedroom houses for $300 a month and work two jobs. One time, I was a catering manager by day and a janitor by night. You have to do what you have to do. I had what I needed and even a little more than I needed. I don't regret working a lot during this period at all. I would regret, however, going into debt to afford a lifestyle that I didn't need. Fast forward to marriage and I was blessed to find someone similarly frugal and hardworking. It probably helps that I met him living in one of those dirt cheap rentals that I talked about. Apparently, in a previous shared rental, he had actually made his roommates shut off the heat during the winter to save money. Okay, there's Frugal, and then there's Ebenezer Scrooge. Together, we made intentional choices to be content with less so that we could enjoy a more abundant and peaceful life. It started with the wedding. We got married on a Friday morning instead of paying weekend or evening rates, knowing that the people who really mattered would still come. Family members arranged flowers I bought from the grocery store, ran music I bought from iTunes, and set up handmade decor. I intended to go without a wedding cake, but someone generously gifted us one. All in all, we spent less than $5,000 on the whole event. The wedding is one day. Marriages are forever. It's just like my inexpensive birthday parties that I talked about as a kid. You have to have the right perspective to set yourself up for an abundant future. It's not that we've never struggled financially at all in our marriage. We have just figured out what matters and what we really need. The key to being financially free is focusing on what you need and making sure 
everything you spend your money on serves you and has a clearly defined purpose. Knowing that brings us a good deal of peace. He and I actually started out with very little money. I was unemployed and he was lowest on the totem pole at his company. At one point, it was apparent we needed cash and fast, so I sold everything I had of value and I made $1,000 in a week. You do what you have to do. We've lived on very little and we've lived on more than we need, but our contentment has never been contingent on any of it. We both know that we'd survive on less and that perspective has kept us in check financially. I'd make do with no vehicles tomorrow if we were in a bind and had to sell both of our cars. They deliver groceries now, we'd be okay for a while. Because contentment isn't circumstantial. It isn't based on where I live or how I live. It's something inside of me. So how do we live below our means as a single income family in one of the most expensive places to live in America? Before I get into that, I will say that I know my lifestyle isn't for everyone. Some people value certain expenditures more than I do and have different needs than I do, and I totally understand that. I'm very aware that I'm supremely blessed to be married to someone who shares my thinking and who worked really hard to teach himself a marketable skill that pays decently. We're not rich, but we aren't struggling. I'm also very aware that there are times where, no matter what you do, you will still be living paycheck to paycheck. I've been there too, trust me. That's why I live the way I do now, to avoid having to struggle like that again. I do hope that something in here will give you ideas for the future or resources that might be helpful. I'm just sharing what we do to have financial peace in the hopes that someone out there gets an idea that helps them too. And maybe, maybe you're like us. Maybe you're not struggling. Maybe you do have everything you need, but maybe you feel tied to your job. You feel like you simply can't quit or can't change careers without sacrificing your lifestyle or what you have. And if that's you, this is for you too. No one should feel a slave to their jobs or a slave to their careers. That's probably not your purpose in life. So here's some general advice. Don't think about the lifestyle you want to have. Instead, think about the kind of person and family you want to be and the home you want to create. Then map your needs around that. That way, you won't be working for the weekend or working to fund a lifestyle. I want to be a peaceful person and I want people to feel at ease and at peace in my home. But in order to be at peace, I need to not be worried about debt. I'd rather drive a 20-year-old car that burns oil and go back to work than be in any kind of debt. That's just my preference and where I want to be in life. Which brings us to the most key part of our single income lifestyle, debt. We don't believe in debt. This is pretty uncommon in America. Most people are in debt. But I've never met a credit card that has a good enough reward to offset the debilitating effects that debt can have. A trip to Disneyland isn't worth being in debt. Cheaper airfare isn't worth being in debt. I may be able to afford the payments now, but I don't know if we'll lose our jobs next month and suddenly be saddled with debt we can't afford. No thanks. We don't have car payments or student debt either. We each briefly considered grad school and then decided against it because we just couldn't justify the debt, not knowing if we'd make much more money in the end. Our mortgage is the only debt we do carry, and we're okay with that because homes are an appreciable asset, so a mortgage is an investment. What's crazy is that I did have student loans early on that I paid off in 2012 because my husband said we could only get married after I paid off my student debt. I only had $7,000 to begin with, but man, suddenly I found a way to pay it off very quickly. I don't even know where the money came from. And also, in hindsight, I can't believe I married someone who gave me that kind of ultimatum, but it worked out. I'm blessed to have him. Regarding unforeseen debt, I understand that sometimes crazy things happen in life, like medical emergencies that even the best planning can't safeguard against. 
If that's you, my heart goes out to you. But the debt I'm talking about is the debt we choose to take on, like car loans, shopping, and student loans. Yeah, taking on student loans is a choice. You may feel like it's a choice you have to make, but it still is a choice you make, nonetheless. Dave Ramsey is a guru of all things money management and debt. I highly recommend his course, Financial Peace University. I will link to his website in my podcast transcripts on my website, youruncommonlife.com. This is a resource for everyone listening, regardless of your financial situation. Dave Ramsey will help you save money, invest, and get out of debt for good. Even if you're not in debt, he has great information on building up a reserve of savings, investing, and more. He emphasizes that you can save and invest at any income and has a methodical way of showing you how. I won't be able to convince you to stay out of debt as well as he will, so please check him out. Now let's discuss the biggest thing most of us spend our money on, housing. Most of us have more than we technically need since needs are measured very basically in the hierarchy of needs. All you need is warmth, safety, and security. We add to those needs, though, and push ourselves further away from contentment. Have you ever heard married couples reminiscing about how much fun they had early in marriage when they lived in some crappy hellhole of an apartment? This is because they didn't really need more than the basics to be content. But as we expand our idea of what we need, we become discontent when we realize we are deficient in fulfilling those lofty basic needs. After marriage, we spent two years shacking up with roommates and then renting a very tiny and cheap apartment. But when we bought our first home, it was very important to me that we not be house poor. Remember the average home where we lived is $1.1 million. It would be very easy to overextend ourselves in the housing department. So we bought the least expensive single family home we could find in the city we wanted to live in. We have never lived in a home that costs more than we could afford on one of our incomes. We live in our second home now. We've sold the first one. But both times, we made sure we qualified for a mortgage on only one of our incomes. If we couldn't have afforded it, we would have moved somewhere cheaper or not purchased a home at all. This single-income lifestyle has given us peace of mind and flexibility in our careers. We never wanted to feel like slaves to our jobs to the extent that we couldn't survive for a little while without one of them. We wanted me to be free to be a stay-at-home mom if I wanted to be. This lifestyle also safeguards us against unanticipated job loss. It did mean that we had to adjust our expectations of what we really needed in a home. Not only was our first home pretty small, but we also had a reduced standard of living compared to most people around us. That doesn't mean we went without, we still had a full, abundant life, but we managed the way we approach expenses, big and small, by scrutinizing them through a very different lens. Reducing our standard of living so that we could live off of one income has had a huge influence on my freedom, peace, and mental health. At multiple points throughout our marriage, my husband has encouraged me to quit my jobs even though I've been a high earner. If you listen to episode two of this show, you hear this whole story. There were times that I really needed to not work for my mental health. After my miscarriage two years ago, I was drowning and needed time to heal myself physically and emotionally. But work was pulling me under. I'm not sure I ever would have recovered fully had I not been able to take a few months off of work. I am so thankful we set ourselves up so that I could do that. If we were deep in debt or struggling to pay our mortgage, I don't think I could have. And honestly, I don't know where I'd be today. It's easier to reduce your standard of living and therefore your expenses when you start to consider what you really need and get very intentional when you buy things. I find that discontentment starts with placing things you want into the need category. Remember the hierarchy of needs we talked about? I try to check my needs often. 
From dinners out to vacations and shopping, we usually spend very little. Usually, before I make purchases, I simply ask myself, do I really need this? And the answer is usually no. I definitely have what I need. It's good to be reminded of that, but it doesn't mean that I can't buy things I want, as long as they serve me well. Some follow-up questions I ask are, what purpose will this thing serve for me? And how important is that purpose to me? Everything you own should have a purpose and serve you. I can't claim to have come up with this philosophy on my own. I love Ali Casaza from The Purpose Show and her philosophy of minimalism. Essentially, everything you own should serve you. If you're serving it, maintaining it, cleaning it, storing it, letting it take up space in your house, etc., and it is not serving you very well, it's time to get rid of it. Now, you can preempt the need to get rid of things and purge your house by sincerely asking yourself that question when you're out shopping or when you're considering any other major purchase. What purpose will this thing serve for me? You will find that you start to buy less and less stuff or you start to really consider, do I need that home upgrade? Do I need this thing in my car? It's easy to live below your means when you aren't confused about the difference between need and want. I'm not saying never buy nice things. But be wiser and more intentional about where you spend your money on nice things. I have certain things I spend money on like basic makeup and skincare because I want to preserve my skin. I have a lot of clothes and shoes, though I do buy them all used or on clearance and rarely spend more than $40 on any single item. There are many things I just don't spend much on because I can get the service I need for far less money. Almost everything I owned was purchased used. From furniture to clothes to dishes and appliances, you can find almost everything you need on Facebook Marketplace, OfferUp, Craigslist, or your local thrift store. There's no shame in getting used things. Often, they're almost as good as new. Cars are a great example of this. There are over 100 million car loans in the U.S. spread across our 122 million households. So, on average, approximately 5 out of every 6 households have car loan debt. This blows my mind. We all know cars are a rapidly depreciating asset. One way we live uncommonly is that we only buy used cars in cash. Until last year, my newest car was a 2006 Toyota Camry. I still have it. It serves me well. Now, my newest car is a 2016 Mazda SUV, which is the most money I've spent on anything aside from my home. For the first few years of our marriage, we each drove mid-90s beater cars until they broke down or were stolen. We were quite content then, and we are quite content now. I can actually justify owning a more reliable and safe car now that I have a baby. The SUV serves a purpose because it gets great traction on ice, which we get a lot of around here, and it's easy to get a baby in and out of. But I didn't need a brand new car or a huge one or a luxury one. I just needed one that served a basic purpose. And had we not been able to pay for it in cash, we would have saved up and waited. When it comes to home furnishings, we're pretty frugal too. The most I've ever spent on a single piece of furniture is a couch I got off of Craigslist for $300 six years ago. Most of what I owned was free on local Facebook groups. I don't buy anything trendy. Instead, I buy things that are solid and will last. It would easily cost thirty dollars to $40,000 to furnish my entire home in a trendy style. I'm not exaggerating. If I start in one room, I'll just want to do more. So I don't even let myself go down that route because I know it won't improve my life if I do so and I'll still be discontent when I look at the parts of my house that aren't quite as nice as the other parts of my house. Instead, I will regularly buy cheaper things like throw pillows or plants to freshen up a room for minimal money. And if I can make something or do it myself without too much time investment, I will. 
I saved thousands of dollars by learning how to tile and doing the backsplash and the floor in my old kitchen. Home decor and furnishings is an area where I personally struggle with contentment. I tend to always wish I had more in a way that stirs up negative feelings. Discontentment is the root of several other issues like jealousy and frustration, and I don't want any part of it. So I have to actively avoid situations that cause discontent with my home furnishings. For example, I find that the more time I spend on social media, the more I want a pretty matching bedroom set with fluffy white linens, or I want whitewashed everything. Seriously, why is everything white nowadays? The more I expose myself to other people on social media, especially the non-normals, the influencer type people, I become less content with my mismatched but effective furniture that serves me just fine. You see, contentment is a quiet internal state of mind, but it's easily affected by external factors. We carry contentment inside of us, but our context can push us up or down the spectrum. If I want to stay content, I have to manage my context. I have to manage what I expose my mind to. Lately, I have been actively avoiding things that stir up jealousy. I have been unfollowing accounts that aren't very beneficial and make me feel badly about myself and my circumstances. I hide stories and articles about things I don't need. I feel no shame in unfriending or unfollowing people. You have to do what's good for you and not feel guilty about it. It also helps if I play a would-you-rather game in my mind with money, meaning I ask myself questions like, what would I rather do with the money? If that beautiful living room set is $3,000, wouldn't I rather have a vacation or save up for a greenhouse instead? These are just a few examples of how we've reduced our standard of living so we can have financial peace. I feel like living this way has given us great freedom, but remember, the foundation of this isn't just the external purchase we do or don't make, it's contentment. Remember what Socrates said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Look internally and to God for contentment first. You won't find it in a bigger house, a remodel, more things, a better car, or anything else. Fulfill your basic needs, keep them basic, and live a fuller, richer life. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you like the podcast, the best way you can help out is to subscribe and leave a review. You can visit my website, youruncommonlife.com, to read blogs, find podcast transcripts, and more. Please join my Facebook group, Your Uncommon Life, to join a community of supportive people. Have a great day.